I was going to ask someone else to do the Bible reading today, and then maybe if you'll see why I, I sort of stopped and didn't ask someone to do it, because I didn't think it'd be a fair one to allow someone to read for obvious reasons. So have a look with me at Judge, uh, Joshua chapter 12. And we're going to start together and read a bit of Joshua chapter 12, and then we're going to jump to Joshua chapter 21. And they're all on your sheet. You just follow it through and uh, be no bother. Starting at verse 7. It's God's word. This is God's word, right? Remember that, because this is interesting. And these are the kings of the land whom Joshua and the people of Israel defeated on the west side of the Jordan, from Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon to Mount Halak that rises towards Seir. And Joshua gave their land to the tribes of Israel as a possession according to their allotments. In the hill country, in the lowland, in the Arava, uh, in the slopes, in the wilderness, in the Negev, in the Hittite, in the land of the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. The king of Jericho won. The king of Ai, which is beside Jericho, sorry, beside Bethel, won. The king of Jerusalem won. The king of Hebron won. The king of Jarmuth won. The king of Lachish won. The king of Eglon won. The king of Gezer won. The king of Devir won. The king of Geder won. The king of Hormah won. The king of Arad won. The king of Livna won. The king of Adulam won. The king of Makeda won. The king of Bethel won. The king of Tapua won. The king of Hefer won. The king of Aphek won. The king of Lashron won. The king of Madon won. The king of Hazor, come on everybody, won. The king of Shamro, Shimron Meron won. The king of Ashfath won. The king of Tanakh won. The king of Medigo won. The king of Kedesh won. The king of Jokniem in Carmel won. The king of Dor in Naphath Dor won. The king of Goyim in Galilee won. The king of Tizra won. In all, 31 kings. Joshua 21. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it and settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one of the word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. This is God's word. For those of you who are new or maybe haven't been with us very long, you are coming, to the, coming in at the end of a series we've been doing through this book of the Bible called Joshua, called Taking Possession. And today, tonight, I'm going to attempt to do an overview of nine chapters, from chapter 12 to chapter 21. Is that nine? Anyway, from chapter 12 to chapter 21, and, and, and really, um, that's really coming to the end of the book of Joshua. What we see um, as we come to the end of Joshua is the promise of God, number one. We see the fulfillment of God, number two. And we see a fuller fulfillment, number three. Okay? Promise, fulfillment, and fuller fulfillment. 
And I'll show you what I mean as we go through. If you want to understand something about the shape of the Christian life, what it means to be a Christian, you can understand it under those three headings. Promise, fulfillment, fuller fulfillment. God gives you a promise, he fulfills it to you, and he continues to fulfill it to you more and more as life goes on. If you want to understand the book of Joshua, promise, fulfillment, fuller fulfillment. If you want to understand the entire Bible, it's those three things. So let's have a look at what we mean when we say the promise of God. We begin with the promise of God in this book of Joshua. The promise that God made to the children of Israel, his chosen people. Uh, if you were with us right at the start of this series, you'll remember that God said to Joshua, the leader of the people of Israel at that time, he said, Moses is dead, so I want you to get up. I want you to cross over the river Jordan into the land that I am giving you. And the, every place where you put your foot, every place where you tread, I have given you just as I promised to Moses. And you're going to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give to them. Promises of God. And then as we get to the end of this series, where we are now, we see these promises being fulfilled. They start coming good. And so, as I said, I'm going to try and summarize this entire section and show you where this is all coming from. The idea is, with this whole series we've been looking at, is that God makes a promise and the people take possession. They take the land. And the idea is that they were to go into this, this land, the promised land, and they were to reflect God to the surrounding nations. And the way they did that was through worship. They were to be, as, as the scripture later on says, they were to be a light to the nations. And, and, and by the way they lived their lives, they were to reflect something of God to the other nations around them. They were to image his glory. They were not to become some sort of weird, introspective, freaky group of people. But the intention for Israel was that they were to live such lives... They were to organize such a community that they would attract the nations to God, those around them, by the way they live, by their counter-cultural, life-giving, justice-blossoming community. That was to be attractive to everybody outside. That's the idea. And so, in this section that we've just read together, we see the promises of God coming into full focus and application, being applied, coming good, if you like. The basis, sorry, the key that I want to get across to you this evening is that the basis of their hope, the basis of their vision as the people of God was that they were certain that God would fulfill his promises. That's what kept them going. That's what motivated them to be strong and courageous. They knew that when God spoke a word, it would come to pass. It would happen. And that's important for us right here this evening to, to grasp before we move on any further. Because particularly uh, Christians, certain Christians, perhaps um, certain types of churches, you'll hear quite a lot about promises of God. That phrase, that concept, promises of God. Churchy circles will quite often talk about the promises of God, and that's a good thing. But, speaking personally, and maybe you can relate to this somehow as well, sometimes that feels a bit weak and a bit floppy. Maybe we just grow too familiar with that idea of the promises of God. We tell everyone, I'll oh, just believe in the, the promises of God. Sometimes it just ends up sounding a bit detached. 
so subjective, so vague, so generalized. And we ask the question, what difference do the promises of God make to me? But what I want to show you just now is that the Old Testament promises of God to his people came good because God spoke directly to his people. And the New Testament promises that God makes to his people came good because God spoke directly to them. So what I'm saying is we're not just making up these things, these promises, because they're nice and we can write them on a wall hanging and put them up in our kitchen. That's not the point. The reason why Christians get excited about the promises of God is because God spoke them. And when we read the Bible, we realize that when God speaks a promise, 10 times out of 10, they come good. Every time God issues a promise to us in Scripture, it always happens. Always. And that's why Christians get excited about the promises of God. And if you're here, perhaps for the first time, and you've, you've never heard talk of the promises of God, or maybe you've been a Christian for many years, and you think you know about the promises of God, let me just take you through some of the promises that we see in Scripture. So you know that when we get excited about the promises of God, we, you know what we're talking about. What am, I, what, am I, what am I on about? Here's a promise of God. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Here's the promise. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's a promise of God. If you believe in him, you'll not die. Eternal life. Promise of God. Philippians 1.6 I am sure of this. He who began a good work in you, Christian, will carry it on to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. That is a promise of God. If God started a work in you, he will finish it off. Here's another promise. Jesus says, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's a promise. Here's another promise. Those whom God called, he justified, and those whom he justified, he glorified. If God has called you, and put faith in your heart to believe in Jesus, you will one day go on to complete perfection in the new heavens and the new earth. That is a promise. Here's another promise. I am certain that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's a promise. Here's another one. You are receiving, Christian, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We were singing that. Here's another promise. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Here's another promise. And I saw the new heaven and the new earth and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven to, to, from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice uh, from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with his people. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death will be no more. And there'll be no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Promise, 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 promise. Throughout the Bible, these are just a small handful of the promises that God has spoken to his people. And what I'm saying to you this evening what we see in the book of Joshua is that when God says a promise, he will always, always fulfill it for you. 
Is that good news or what? It is good news. These are promises that God speaks to you, believer in Jesus. He speaks to us as a church, grace upon grace, promise upon promise, certainty upon certainty. You can build your life upon the promises of God. There's enough in what I've just told you there to go on a lifetime. And suffice to say, that is just the tip of the iceberg in terms of promises that God lays out to you in the Bible. So what room do you have in your life for worry when you see the promises of God? What room do you have in your life for fear of the future when you read the promises of God? What room do you have in your life for anxiety when you see what he has committed himself to do in your life? One thing the Bible sets out to show us from beginning to end is that God has an impeccable track record. He has a perfect record when it comes to keeping his promises. Every promise shall come to pass. And we see that starting to take place in this passage that we've just read. The promise of God. That's where it starts. That's where it starts for you. Do you know the promises of God? Have you read them? Do you read the Bible? Do you think about them? Do you, do you allow them to, to, to change your heart? Promises of God. But that's just not it. Because there's one thing, getting excited about the things that God says will happen. And of course, the, the, next, best, the, the, the next thing is, is, is possibly even better, is that, that what he says will happen actually comes to pass the fulfillment so that's the second point i want to make we've seen the promises of god number two we'll see the fulfillment we had a bit of a laugh but the the start from verse 7 through to verse 24 in chapter 12 that big long list of all these kings what's going on what have we just been reading well it says at the top these are the kings of the land whom joshua and the people of israel defeated it's a, it's a list of all their victories. King after king after king after king. Victory after victory after victory. 31 in total. And as we, we've been reading through the book of Joshua in this series, it's been recounting some of the victories. At the start, it was one king. And then another king after that. Israel were victorious over them. And then little groups of kings got together and Israel were victorious over them too. And then large groups of kings and all their armies and all their treasures got together and Israel defeated them too. King after king fell. Jericho and the walls of Jericho fell. Remember that? The people melted in fear, it says, according to one of the inhabitants of this city. On paper, you see, Israel shouldn't have won any of these battles. They may have been lucky, they may have scraped through one. But they shouldn't have won any of them. But the reason why they won them was because God is faithful and what he says he promises to do always comes good. And that's why we get to that bit at the end in verses 43 to 45 and at the end of chapter 21, that summary and conclusion. The Lord gave Israel the land that he swore to give to their fathers and they took possession and they settled there.
And so between these two readings, if you like, between chapter 12 and the end of chapter 21, we see Israel being apportioned the land. You know, it was allotted. They, they sort of threw dice, if you like. And, uh, you know, the various tribes went here and some went there and some went north and some went south. That's the details of all that is in, ver- in chapters 12 through to 21. But as we see here, God gives remarkable promises and always fulfills them. Maybe that is a word for you this evening that you need to hear. Maybe for some reason or other in your life you have thought that you're an exception to that rule. Whether you're a Christian or not doesn't actually come into it here. Have you convinced yourself that you're an exception to that rule? Because according to the scriptures here, every promise that God makes will come good. Every promise for you too. God gave the people of Israel land. He gave them rest and he gave them their enemies into their hands. Or in other words, God gave them a place to be, he gave them a peace to enjoy and he gave them a power over all enemies. Place, peace and power. God said to them, everywhere you put your foot, that will be yours. And at the end of it, it was theirs. This, folks, is a a golden moment in the history of Israel, right here. It is like the high watermark. It defines the people. They enjoyed unparalleled success. But do you note, in all their victory, in all their progress, in all of their taking possession and settling in the land, do you see the one who gave it? It says three times, God gave, God gave, God gave. It was God who gave that stuff. They simply entered. They received. They just stood with open hands and received what God gave them. That's how they won the victory. But the question I want to think about with you just now, let's just park that for a second. The question I want to think about with you just now is this. How do we know, how do we know that the promises of God as we've just read in the Bible, how do we know that they come good for us, for me personally? How do we know that we can build our hope and our life on this stuff? Because you might think to yourself, well, that's all okay for the religious types to get excited about all that, for the good living people, but surely not for someone like me. How do we know, how do you know, how do I know that the promises of God are good for me? And the answer I want to put before you is this. The promises of God from start to finish in the Bible are given to you because of the gospel. That's how you know they're for you, because of the gospel. In Jesus, listen to this, in Jesus, the promises of God go from being vague hope to absolute certainty. I'll say that again. In Jesus, the promises of God go from being a vague hope to absolute certainty. According to St. Paul, all of God's promises, he says, find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. According to the gospel, 
Jesus is the reason that God's promises are absolutely guaranteed to us. He is the way the promises are given to us. He is the instrument the promises are given to us. He is the means that the promises are given to us. It's all about Jesus in the gospel. That's how you know. But let's just be clear for a second. Religion and the gospel are two different things. Let me, let me just help us think about that. Religion says this. Religion says, I can earn the blessing of God through doing good deeds and stopping bad deeds. That's what religion says. I can earn it. It's on you. Do enough good stuff, stop doing the bad stuff, and you'll get the blessing. That's religion. But the problem is, the problem is, you can never satisfactorily do enough to be sure that you're going to get God's promises. You can never do enough good deeds to be sure that God is going to bless you. And there's always a nagging doubt that the bad things you've done will just follow you around like a sack of stones on your back. Either way, if you try to follow religion to earn God's blessing, you'll turn into a very proud person because you think you're doing better than the average believer. Or you'll turn into a very anxious person because you never think you're doing enough to get God's blessing. Either way, religion doesn't work. Let me give you an illustration which is red hot from this morning. At 11 o'clock this morning, when many people paused for two minutes to observe the Armistice Day and the Remembrance Sunday, both of which fall on today, I was in McDonald's car park preparing and finishing my sermon. That's where I go every Sunday, by the way. Coffee's good. I came up to 11 o'clock and I just put my things down and I observed two minutes of silence. And that's good. That's a good thing to do, um, to thank God for the freedom we have. But during that two minutes of silence, people were driving in to McDonald's, going into the, uh, you know, the, um, the drive-through. There were kids running around. And so at that moment, when I was busy observing and thanking God for my freedom, genuinely, I was also thinking, part of my heart was thinking, oh, some people, some people, of all the times you could get your McDonald's, this is Armistice Day, everybody. Surely you should sit and give thanks to God. And there you are running off to get your Happy Meals at 11 o'clock in the morning. You see, at that moment, can you see what was going on for me in my heart? This is confession, folks. At that moment, I was being religious. I wasn't embracing the gospel. I was doing something that I thought was morally good and morally right. And then I was looking down on other people. You're not as morally good and as morally right as I am. If you were, you'd be stopping and observing two minutes of silence. It's a silly, perhaps it's a silly illustration. But that's what I mean when I say religion makes you proud. It makes you look down on people. And doesn't work anyway. Because that's not the stuff that God is interested in. So religion, whatever way you look at it, does not bring the blessing of God into your life. The gospel does bring the blessing of God into your life. The gospel says this, your good works are not good enough to earn God's blessing. But your bad works 
are not bad enough to forfeit God's blessing. But instead, the gospel says this. It's not about your good works or your bad works, ultimately. The gospel is this. In Jesus, because of his perfect life and his death on the cross and his resurrection and his ascension to heaven, because of that and all his good works, they are applied to you when you believe in him. That's the gospel. So you can see that it doesn't matter about good works or bad works, ultimately. It matters about Jesus and whether you trust him. Because when you do, through the gospel, through Jesus' work and not your own, you are guaranteed to inherit the promises of God. Guaranteed. It makes you a child of God. And according to St. Paul, it makes you an heir of the family fortunes. The riches of heaven, the blessing of place and peace and power come to you when you trust in Jesus. It's the gospel, it's not religion. So there are no vague promises because of the gospel. You can build your life on the promises of God because of Jesus. What about you? When you hear that, are you trying hard to earn the blessing of God because of religion? Or have you embraced the work of Jesus by faith? Which, interestingly, starts to change your heart and make you do good works naturally because you want to, because you love to not because you're trying to earn anything. So which one are you? Have you made that choice? So we've seen in this text and this, this, this general sweep, we've seen the promises of God to start. We've seen the fulfillment of that and that only comes to us through Jesus Christ. But then we come to a fuller fulfillment. This is the third point and the last point. Fuller fulfillment. Because there is more to come. Israel were given a place, they were given a peace, and they were given a power. But when you read the chapters in between, you'll realize that that wasn't the final word. That they had more work to do. There's a couple of pointers. Let me just show you where I get this from. You can go back and read it yourselves later in the book of Joshua. How do we know that the final promise hadn't come to them and there was more to come? Well, when we read through, we realize that although Israel took possession of the land, there were still some of the pagan Canaanites living among them. And God said to them, you were to clear them out, you were to push back the darkness. But instead, one or two tribes of Israel decided rather than obey God, they would just allow the Canaanite tribes to just live with them. And uh, as we see in the next book of the Bible, the book of Judges, that proved to be a um, a terrible decision really threatened the entire people of Israel but we know that there's more to come because there was darkness that had to be pushed back even though the promises had come to Israel here right now there was still more to come there was a greater fulfillment a fuller fulfillment yes they had the land but no they were not done the other point that we see in these verses in between is these things called cities of refuge. 
We see that in chapter 20. Again, you can check back if you want later on. But in chapter 20, God says, out of all the cities that you now possess, I want six of them to be defined as cities of refuge across the land of Palestine. And the point with a city of refuge is that if you commit a serious crime, you're an Israelite, you commit a serious crime, particularly if you kill someone without intent, without murdering them, without trying to kill them, but you did it by accident for whatever reason, then you will flee to one of these six cities of refuge that are dotted around the land. And you can go there and you can be safe before your case is heard in court. And the point with this is that it prevented, within the society, it prevented revenge killing. It prevented family from, you know, the person who died coming after you and getting vengeance upon you. It prevented a rising of escalation. It prevented tit for tat. It prevented all of these things. And so God said, I want you to have cities of refuge. So we can see there, that whilst they had the promises of God, they had not finished the work. They had to develop this community of justice and mercy, which is very unusual in the ancient world compared to other nations at that time. Two things to show us that they had arrived, but not yet arrived. They had taken possession, but they were not yet perfect. This was no heaven on earth. There was a sense that they had already arrived and yet not yet arrived. I don't know if you've been reading along with the community Bible reading. As a church, a number of us read together the Bible every day. We read a chapter or two chapters a day. And this week past, we've just been going through the book of Hebrews, which is what I was reading from at the start of the service. And Hebrews 11 <coughs> has this long list, another list, of saints, these Old Testament saints. It's like a hall of fame, you know, just listing off these great saints and the amazing things they've done. Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Moses, Joshua, King David. And every time it lists one of these great people of God, it says, by faith, Abraham did this. By faith, Enoch did that. By faith, Joshua did this. By faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. And it says at the end of this big, long list, <coughs> all these, this is Hebrews 11, all these, though commended for their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God provided something better. What's he saying? What's that passage saying? It's saying this, none of the Old Testament people received the promise in its fullness because there was something greater. There was something more. Remember I said to you at the start, you can think about the Christian life in terms of promise, fulfillment, and fuller fulfillment. Well, this is the fuller fulfillment. This is so practically helpful for us today as we grapple with God's promises, as we feel stirred and excited by what God has promised to do for us. <clears throat> These promises are true. Yes, they are guaranteed and delivered through the gospel. Yes, and they are yours today if you put your faith in Jesus. Yes, but there remains a fuller fulfillment of these promises. We're not there yet. This is not heaven on earth. I know you know that. 
But some of us, some believers, some types of churches might forget that we haven't arrived yet. They might forget that there is more to come. Some believers overexpect what we should have now and they underexpect what the future has bound up for them. Some believers and churches, unfortunately, expect the completion and the fullness of the promises now. And that creates Christians who become disillusioned. They feel let down by God because they're told and they come to believe, you promised all this stuff for me, God, and, and it hasn't come through. They feel like they are filled up with religious excitement only to be disappointed and deflated when all the hype comes to nothing. But when we take a close look at the scriptures in the Bible, we realize that that's not the way that God has it for us. See, in the church, this church and all churches, in the church of Jesus Christ, <clears throat> we are in the now and the not yet. We live in his promises now, and yet they still have a fuller fulfillment. We are in the here, but yet in the more to come. As Christians, we have arrived, and yet we're still on a journey. As a church, we are comfortable, and yet we are uncomfortable. As God's people, we are confident, and yet we are awkward, because we know there is more to come. The Bible finishes in Revelation with this great vision, this great picture, this future hope. I read it earlier on. And it gives us this image. It's the new heaven and the new earth, this holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Note, heaven comes down to us. And God says, now finally the dwelling place of God is with man. He will live with them and they will be his people, and he will be their God, and he'll wipe every tear, and there'll be no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. That is what lies ahead of the church. We don't have that yet. We still have mourning and crying and pain now, because we're in the now and the not yet. It doesn't mean that God has failed in his promises. It just means that there is a fuller fullness to come. So let me close with a couple of practical <clears throat> implications to what we've just been talking about. Promise, fulfillment, fuller fulfillment. What does that mean for us as a church? Number one, as we were praying earlier and as we've been reading, we behave and we act as a city of refuge. While we wait for God to finish his work and come again, we as his people in the church enact mercy and justice like a city of refuge. We operate as a community and we behave in such a way to the outside world that we extend mercy and justice, the values of the kingdom, to the world. We become a light to the nations. And we talk about that in various ways uh, week to week through our partnerships with mission agencies, through what we do as a church, through what we learn and how we apply that as individuals. We go out, we behave as cities of refuge where the people come fleeing to the church, fleeing to God, number one. Number two, <clears throat> not only are we a city of refuge, but number two, we propagate the promises. 
That's why we say at Foundation Church we are missional in practice because we're all about sharing the promises of God with whoever will listen. Have you understood the momentousness of those promises in your life? Does your heart skip a beat or two when you hear what God has in store for you? Does your heart grow strangely warm, as the old guys used to say? Have you read them? Have you reflected on these promises? We are given the power to share, to explain, and to engage with the promises of God. My prayer is that for us as a church, we will do that more consistently, more passionately, with every day of our lives, talking the gospel with whoever will listen to us. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that every promise that you give us is yes and amen in Jesus. We thank you, Jesus, for living a perfect life, dying a death that we couldn't die, and being raised on the third day so that in you we might have life. In you we receive the fulfillment of the promises. So Father, will you help us? Will you stir us by what we've heard this evening? Would you apply these promises deeply to us, whether we don't know you or whether we have known you and walked with you for many years? Bring all of us closer to you, Lord God. Now as we come to take the bread and the wine as we continue in our worship, would you feed us, as you feed our bodies, would you feed likewise our soul? In the name of Jesus we pray and for his glory. Amen.